theyeshiva.net. Okay, today's class is dedicated by Noam Kasper in memory of Daniela Shena Bas Rabbi Yeshua Falik, who loved listening to your classes. Thank you very much. And may her memory serve as an eternal source of light and blessing and inspiration to the whole family and to all of the Jewish people. I also want to dedicate the class to my son, whose birthday is today, Gershon Daiv Berbenester Avigail, wishing you uh, with a lot of love an amazing year in all aspects. So today we will discuss Shavuos, the holiday that's coming upon us in a few days. And I'll also begin by just inviting everybody. Shavuos is uh, Mitzay Shabbos, this coming Mitzay Shabbos, of course. So uh, Shabbos morning we have our regular class here, 9 o'clock. But in honor of Shavuos, so there will be two shiurim, two lectures here in the tent, both for men and women and youth with a mechitza. That's going to be the first one, 1 o'clock in the morning till 2.30. And the second class will be 2.45 till 4.15 a.m. Don't get too jealous of me. So that's Shavuos night. This year, Mitzvah Shabbos, 1 to 2.30. And the second one, 2.45 till 4.15. The topic of the first class is David and Bathsheba. In a way you never heard it. And the topic of the second shir, the second lecture is which derech in Judaism will prevail in a hundred years. The second day of Shavuos is a Monday, uh, Shavuos is Sunday and Monday. The second day of Shavuos in the afternoon, 6.30 p.m. There will also be a lecture here for men and women. And the topic is if I only would have known the rest of the story. That's Monday afternoon, the second day of Shavuos, 6.30 p.m. So everybody is invited to either or all of the lectures and classes. So again, the night of Shavuos begins 1 a.m. till 4.15, two classes, and the second day of Shavuos, 6.30 p.m. Please share it also with friends or family or husbands, etc. Everybody is invited. So... I'm going to begin today's class with a story that I heard from a Jewish tycoon, a very affluent and wealthy person who shared this with me a number of years ago. And he said that uh, he once had a meeting with uh, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Margaret Thatcher. You remember Mrs. Thatcher? She was a strong personality. She came to be known as the Iron Lady. I think she served as the longest and firmest Prime Minister of the United Kingdom during the 20th century. And she shared this once with this person who told me the story. He asked her, during your long and distinguished career as the leader of England, what was uh, your most amusing moment? And she immediately said, without skipping a heartbeat, she said, oh, it's very obvious. And she shared with him that the Prime Minister of Britain and the Queen of England meet once a week. That's, I guess, the tradition in the United Kingdom. Tuesday, 6.30, in Buckingham Palace. And that's when the leader, the Prime Minister, shares with the Queen 
I guess the most important developments within Great uh, within Great Britain over the last week. So Margaret Thatcher says every week, 6.30, I would go to the palace to meet Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth. Anyway, one week, <laughs> I come in and I give the traditional bow. You give a traditional bow to the Queen and we're about to sit down and... Uh, a very uncomfortable, awkward uh, scene emerges. Uh, it's good I'm not talking to men because they wouldn't understand it, but I think everybody in this room will understand it. To my dismay, what's the worst thing that can happen? We're wearing exactly the same outfit, but not not similar. <laughs> you know, different designers. No, no, no. <laughs> mamish, mamish, identical. <laughs> The men would look at me, what's the problem? We all wear the same outfit. But uh, you know what I'm talking about. Of course, we're, it's in Britain, so you don't talk about these things. <laughs> it's not America. So I made believe I didn't see. And uh, we just had a very awkward conversation and meeting. But when I left, I felt really horrible. So I wrote a note apologizing. And the next morning, I sent in a note to the Queen, and I apologized for any uh, form of disrespect. And I also added that uh, I told my people that henceforth, every week before I come, you ascertain and make sure that uh, we know what the queen is planning to dawn so that another awkward situation does not uh, occur again. And she tells this Jew and she says, I send in my note And a few hours later, the queen sends back a note. And the queen writes as follows. No need to apologize. Her Her majesty never notices what commoners wear. This, Margaret Thatcher said, was her most amusing moment. Now, I like the story. First of all, maybe it tells you something about uh, (laughs) royalty in Britain today. But uh, the Baal Shem Tev once said that everything in life is also a lesson. I think there's a profound lesson that, that can be gleaned from this story, albeit in a different context. The holiday of Shavuos is connected to three personalities. The first, of course, is Moshe Rabbeinu, because Moshe Rabbeinu is the one who gave Moshe Kibbal Torah Messinah, he's the one who gave the Jewish people the Torah on Shavuos. Just uh, in parentheses, it's interesting to note that Shavuos is also the day that Moshe Rabbeinu got a second lease on life. You know, one of the many reasons that's given why we eat milchiks, why we eat dairy products on Shavuos, dairy, where we have a dairy meal on Shavuos, there's many reasons for it. But one of the very interesting reasons that I saw is because Moshe Rabbeinu, according to our tradition, was born on the seventh day of Adar, Zion Adar. It doesn't say it clearly in Chumash, but we deduce it from the Psukim because Moshe Rabbeinu passed away, and after he passed away, it says they grieved for 30 days, and then Yahushua, his successor, said in three days, we're going to go into Eretz Yisrael, and that was the 10th of Nisan, which was 33 days after his passing, which means he passed away on the seventh day of Adar. Before his passing, Moshe Rabbeinu says, today, today, the day that he's going to die, is the day that I became 120 years old. Exactly. Because the Gemara says that special people, that birthday on the day of passing is the same day. 
Shnoiseim shel tzadikim yoyim liyoyim. So he was born on the same day he passed away, which is the seventh of Adar. The Torah says in Parsha Shmois that after his mother gave birth to him, after Yocheved gave birth to Moshe, she hid him, she hid him for three months, so that the Egyptians would not fetch him and grab him and plunge him into the Nile. After three months, she couldn't hide him anymore. Rashi explains because it was a premature birth before seven months, so after three months... She was, he was born uh, not full seven months, but very little, six plus. So he survived, but uh, she could hide him for three months, but not more than that. After three months, of course, she creates a basket. She puts him in the basket and places him in the Nile, hoping that maybe, maybe somebody will have compassion and save this boy. If she would have left him in the home, she would have, he would have just been taken and murdered. Here she hoped, of course, the basket could capsize, an Egyptian could come and throw the baby into the river, baby could die from starvation or dehydration. But she hoped maybe, maybe there's a chance, maybe, who knows, he'll be saved. And of course, Miriam stands there to see what's going to happen. She was all of six years old. And then we all know the rest of the story, the rest of the story. The daughter of Pare Basia comes down to bathe in the Nile, she sees the basket. She fetches the basket, she opens it up. She sees and hears a baby crying. She assumes and knows it's a Jewish child. And instead of killing the kid or just ignoring the child, what does she do? She, she feels compassion. And that's when Miriam seizes the moment. Miriam, hiding in the bushes, runs over and says, should I find for you a Jewish wet nurse to nurse the baby? And the daughter of Paris says, absolutely. And of course, Miriam knows who's the right wet nurse. She goes and brings the mother of the baby, and the arrangement is a fabulous one because Moshe is raised by Pare's daughter in the palace, and yet he's nursed by his own mother, Yecheved, who was hired, so to speak, by Batya as the wet nurse of this baby. So Moshe gets his milk. Now, which day did this happen? If he was born on the seventh day of Adar, three months she hid him. After three months, she can't hide him anymore. So the next day she puts him in the Nile, or that day she puts him in the Nile. Which day is that? Shavuos. That's the holiday of Shavuos. Of course, there was no holiday of Shavuos at the time, but that would be the holiday of Shavuos. And what happens on that day? Many things happen. Number one, Moshe Rabbeinu was saved from death. Number two, equally important is, he gets to be nursed by his own mother. So to commemorate that, we eat milchiks, we drink milk. <laughs> On Shavuos, especially as Rashi says, she tried giving Moshe to many women, but he would not nurse from the Egyptian woman. And it was only his mother who he nursed from. So this is a unique day. Not only is he nursed by his mother, but he's nursed at all because he wasn't nursing from other women, from the Egyptian women. And as a result of that, the custom is that we eat milchiks on Shavuos, whether you drink milk or a coffee, or eat products that ultimately come from milk, whether it's a cheesecake or a lasagna or a pasta with cheese or all the other healthy dairy products that uh, you will eat on Shavuos, or some of us will eat on Shavuos, some more than others, unfortunately, there is this connection with the milk of Moshe Rabbeinu on that day. So Moshe on Shavuos, it's not just the day he gives the Torah, but it's also a day where he got a second lease on life. It wasn't his birthday, but it was his rebirth in the sense that his life was saved and he would be raised in the palace, which would allow him to ultimately redeem the Jewish people from Egypt and give them the Torah, and would also allow his mother to 
raise him, at least until he was ready to completely move into the palace, and the daughter of Pari treated him as a son and also gave him the name Moshe. So Moshe Rabbeinu is the first personality, obviously, associated with the holiday of Shavuos, Moshe Kibbut Misina. The second person is David HaMelech. David HaMelech, it says in Talmud Yerushalmi, David Mace Ba'atzeres. David HaMelech passed away on Shavuos, and David's yard site on Shavuos is extremely significant because David because that's one of the reasons that we read Megillus Rus on Shavuos. There's different reasons why we read Rus on Shavuos. Some communities read it during davening, others say it the night before in the Tikkunel Shavuos. But Shavuos is learned and or read on the holiday of Shavuos. Why Rus? What's the connection? So there's different reasons given. One of the reasons is because Rus was the great-grandmother of David HaMelech because Rus married Boyaz. She was a Moabite princess, but she married Boyaz. And she mothered a boy named Oived, who became the father of Yishai, who was, of course, the father of David. So Rus was the great-grandmother of David. David's father was Yishai, Yishai's father was Oived, and Oived's mother was Rus. And the end of Rus indeed traces the genealogy from Rus to David and tells the dramatic story of how Rus came to the Jewish people and came to Beis Lechem and ultimately ended up marrying Boyaz under the influ- with the influence of her mother-in-law Naomi. And as a result of that, ultimately she creates the dynasty which would produce David HaMelech and then Shleim HaMelech all the way to Mashiach. And that's one of the reasons we read Rus on, on Shru is because it's the art site of her great-grandson David HaMelech and this book traces the genealogy of David HaMelech. So he's the second personality associated with Shavuos, David. The Gemara also says that there was Shabbos, David Meis Ba'atzeres, and there's a whole Gemara that it was <clears throat> how David HaMelech passed away, Meseches Shabbos, a whole, explana- a whole story of exactly how it happened, but Chazal tell us that it was, uh, it was on the holiday of Shavuos, which means there's a connection also to David HaMelech. The third personality connected to Shavuos is many generations later known as the Baal Shem Tov. Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov also passed away on Shavuos. This is, of course, many, many years later. The Baal Shem Tov was born in 1698. They called it Shnas Nachas, Nachas, because in Hebrew it's Hey Allah from Tof Nun Ches, which in the English calendar, secular calendar, would be 1698. And the Baal Shem Tov passed away at the age of 62 in the city of Mezhebush, in a little city, a little town in Ukraine. And uh, that happened on Shavuos. The Hebrew year was Tov Kof Chav, which in English would be 1760. He was born in 1698, and he passed away in the year 1760. Rav Yitzchak Kutne was a Rosh Hashiva of Yeshivas Rabbeinu Chaim Berlin. And he once said something very interesting, a very classic comment. Rav Hutner said that you would think Providence would have it, that uh, the Vilna Gon would pass away on Shavuos, and the Baal Shem Tev would pass away on Sukkot. Because the Vilna Gaon was a great giant of learning. The Baal Shem Tev was the founder of the Hasidic movement that emphasized joy. So he says the Vilna, the Vilna Gaon passed away on Shavuos, the Baal Shem Tev passed, passed, you would think would pass away on Sukkot. But he said, but the Hashkacha had it differently. The Vilna Gaon passed away on Sukkot. And the Baal Shem Tev <laughs> passed away on Shavuos, which is Man Matan Teresenu. The Baal Shem Tev revealed through his movement, through Hasidus, he revealed really the whole Nister, the whole inner core, the inner dimension, the inner soul of Torah, which is known as Pnimiyas HaTorah, which till then was revealed as, was known as Kabbalah, 
Jewish mysticism, Jewish spirituality. And the Baal Shem Tev in his teachings through his students especially articulated this dimension in a more accessible and revealed manner to this very day. And his Yartzad is also on Shavuos. What's the common denominator of these three people? Of course, all of them were leaders and great leaders and great uh, holy leaders and great tzaddikim. But there's something specific and unique about their contributions to Judaism and to Jewish history and to Jewish life and the connection to Shavuos. Because everything is with Hashgach, everything is by divine providence, even small details in the world. Certainly, personalities that play such a central role in Jewish consciousness and Jewish history. Certainly, the day that they complete their mission in the world, which is why we commemorate a Yartzet, because it's the day that somebody really completes the mission in the world, so it's connected to their shlichus, to their mission in the world. What is unique about their mission, about their, uh, their personality? And the answer to that is one word, malchus. Malchus means kingship, or aristocracy, or royalty. Each one of these three people embodied and introduced into the Jewish world malchus, royalty. The truth is that when the Jewish people come to Har Sinai, so the Rebbeinu Shalom gives Moshe a message. And he says, I'm summoning you into a relationship. And the relationship is defined as a relationship of Malchus. And that's the Kriyas, that's what we read on Shavuos. When the Jewish people come to Har Sinai, which was today, the first day of Sivan. The second day is called Yom HaMeyuchas, the day of, 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 of Yichas, of lineage. The day of prominence, because it's the day Hashem told Moshe, to give a message to the Jewish people, you will be for me a kingdom of princesses and a holy nation. What does it mean to be mamleches kayanim? A kingdom of kayanim. Kayanim are translated as priests, but not everybody is a kayan. Most Jews are not kayanim. This was a message to all of them. The Balaturim even writes, mamleches kayanim means kayanim gedolim. Kayan gadol, which was very few Jews. So there's a message here. You're going to be for me, or you could be for me, a holy nation, and a mamleches kayanim. Each Jew is called a melech, or a malka, king or a queen. Part of a family of kings, of royals. Now what does that mean? And on a humorous level, they say that Ben-Gurion once met President Eisenhower. And Eisenhower says, you look very depressed, what's the problem? He says, listen, I have a nation, three million Jews living in Israel, and it's not easy. It's not easy. So Eisenhower says, you're complaining. (laughs) I have 200 million citizens in the United States of America. You have 3 million Jews. What are you comparing? He says, no, no, no. You have 200 million citizens. I have 3 million prime ministers. (laughs) It's very different. To be a prime minister of 3 million prime ministers is different than to be a president over 200 million citizens. America has uh, changed a little since the days of Eisenhower. But you get the point. But the truth is, on a much deeper level, or more genuine level, what is this idea of mamleches koyanim? You'll be for me a kingdom of princesses. What does it mean? But here immediately we see that the theme of malchus, royalty, is essential to Shavuos. It's essential to Matan Torah, because it's not a holiday when something specific occurred. It's the holiday that conferred and confers upon the Jewish people their identity. Rapsad Yagon writes, Umaseinu eneno umakim what makes our nation a nation and a unified nation is the Torah that binds the Jewish people together and really constitutes 
They're raised on the Yetra, their, their very purpose, our mission, our, our calling in this world. Umasenu, if you want a definition for the Jewish people, it's not a geographical definition, because Jews for most of their history have been scattered all around the world. So if the definition of our being a people is geography, then a Jew in Australia and a Jew in Russia, a Jew in America would not be connected. Most of our history, unfortunately, we weren't together in the same piece of land. You can't define Judaism only as a culture, right? For some Jews, gefilter fish is holy. Other Jews don't even know what gefilter fish is. Some Jews, schug is very important, and some people don't even know what schug is. Etc., etc. Culture changes from culture to culture, from country to country, different races. You can't even call it a race. Because Jews come from many different races, different complexions, different uh, backgrounds, different persuasions, certainly different languages, uh, customs and rituals and so forth. So Rabbi Sadiagan says, if you want to find the common denominator, what is it? You look. What makes an American an American is we live in the United States of America. I was born in America. I'm an American citizen. but I live in the same land. But for people that most of their history, they lived, unfortunately, outside of their homeland, most of our history, we didn't live in our homeland. We lived outside of our homeland. Still half the Jewish people live outside of their homeland. So the question is, what makes the papal tick? So Rabbi Saad Yagan, who lived in the 9th, 10th century in Bavel, Rabbi Nusad Yagan in Iraq wrote, he has a sefer, Amunaz Vedeus, his philosophical work. He wrote, What makes our nation a nation is, it's Torah. That identity spans all the countries. It transcends a spe- specific geographical location or a specific culture, a specific language, or a specific race. Most Jews throughout history didn't know Hebrew. They spoke other languages. Till today, many, many Jews don't know Hebrew. There were times they spoke Aramaic. There were times they spoke uh, Ladino <laughs> or Yiddish, which was a German dialect. They, many Jews didn't even know Lashat Kaidish. That's why large parts of Davidin, like Kaddish, were composed actually in Aramaic, not even in Hebrew, so everybody should understand. There's books in Tanakh that are written in Aramaic, parts of Daniel, parts of Ezra and Nehemiah, and there's also the whole Talmud Bavli. And Talmud Yerushalmi, a big, huge part of it, the Talmud was written in, in Aramaic. The Rambam wrote all of his works in Arabic. Besides one, Mishnah Torah, he wrote every single work in Arabic. Why? Because where he lived, most of the Jews spoke that language. They were fluent. He wanted they should understand his works. He wrote a whole commentary to the Mishnah in Arabic. He wrote an encyclopedia of the mitzvah, Sefer mitzvah in Arabic. He wrote his philosophical work, Guide to the Perplexed Meir Nevuchim in Arabic. Certainly all of his books on medicine and, and anatomy and pharmacology and herbs. You know, Rambam wrote books on herbs and a language on linguistics. All of them, every book besides one, Yad HaChazaka, Mishnah Torah, was written in Arabic. So Reb Sadiqan said, but the one element that united all the Jewish people and unites all the Jewish people and became the definition of what it means to be a Jew. So it's a holiday of identity. And that identity is the identity of Torah. So Hashem says, what does it mean to have that identity? It transforms you into a king or into a queen. Now, there's a person who possesses royalty, aristocracy, malchus. What does that mean in a person's life? There were kings, there are kings. Today, uh, you know, the, the monarchy has dissolved. We live in democracies and we're probably very happy about it. The question is, what does it mean? And here we see how why these three people are very much connected to Shruis, because this holiday of malchus, these three people embodied it, 
and most importantly, bequeathed it. They taught it to the people. What it means when the Rebbein Shalom says to Moshe on the second day of Sivan, not only a holy nation, but first, a kingdom of princes. Moshe Rabbeinu is the first Jewish king. Before that, you have Jewish fathers, Jewish patriarchs, but not Jewish kings. Moshe is called a melech. At the end of his life, the famous Pesach says, Vayihi bishurun melech, bishasef am yachat shifte Yisrael. Moshe Rabbeinu was the first Jewish king, even though he wasn't a monarch in the traditional sense of what we call a monarch, wearing a crown and living in a palace. Moshe Rabbeinu was living in a desert, no man's land, and that's where he led the people. But he grew up among a, he grew up in the palace of a king, and he overthrew the monarchy of Egypt to liberate the slaves. In fact, the Eben Ezra, Rabbeinu Avram Eben Ezra, asks a fascinating question. Why did Hashem one that the first Jewish leader in history should not grow up among Jews. Do you know that the first Jewish leader in history did not know what herring or kichlach look like? May have not been at an upshenish or a vachnacht or a shalom zacher. Didn't know what chickpeas look like. How could you be? Didn't know what sponge cake is. How could you be a Jewish leader if you didn't grow up among Jews? Moshe grew up among non-Jews. Not just among non-Jews. He grew up in Paris Palace. From three months old, his mother nursed him, but he was considered Basia's child. So the Ebenezer asks, why did Hashem do it that way? You would think, you know, in America we have a law that the president has to be born in this country. You have to be a home-growing potato or a home-growing tomato. Trump and Obama had this out. This was a very controversial story, you may remember, where Obama was born with Trump and Obama. They had this unique relationship because of Trump's accusations about Obama's birthplace. Why is it important that you're born in the United States? What's wrong if I'm born in Kenya, born in the Philippines? The answer is we want a home grow and we want somebody who's, uh, it's called Mishalano, you know, you, you know the heartbeat of the people. But Moshe was born in Egypt, but he didn't grow up among the Jews. So the Ebenezer says, Said Hashem Lireyev. This is one of the secrets of God. But then he says, I'll offer two reasons. Reason number one is, famous expression, Ein Navi Be'ira. You can't be a prophet in your own city. Moshe would have been raised among Jews. Every yachna and every yenta would have what to tell him about himself. Oh, I used to babysit for you. I remember your bris. You didn't stop crying. You were such a little cute baby. When did you become a prophet? When did you become a navi? Oh, were you so difficult when you were a kid? You're so cute. You're still cute, Moshe. That's what he says. Very fascinating observation. The people you grow up with, it's very hard for them to respect you. You know, they, saw, they see you differently. Moshe would never be able to command the respect that was necessary for him to really lead the people. That's explanation number one. Devanezer gives another explanation. He says if Moshe would have grown up among Jews, unfortunately he would have had a slave mentality because they were slaves. And in order to be able to overthrow Parai, he had to think like a king. His vision had to be broad, expansive. What we call today thinking out of the box. He couldn't have been a product of the education, of the meltership, of the pedagogy, of the Egyptian slaves, because then his thought process would have been very, very, uh, what's the word, Uh, parochial, restricted, narrow, for good reason, not their fault, for good reason. But he grew up in in, in a palace. He grew up in aristocracy. So that was his way of thinking. The Gemara says in Sanhedrin, 
which means the tree gets cut down from an axe which uses wood as its handle. You understand? The, the tree gets felled from wood that's taken from the tree. Paroi had to be defeated from somebody who, who, who understood the zeitgeist, who, who, who appreciated the energy of aristocracy, of royalty. So Moshe then could think in a different way. He didn't think as a slave. His, he, he introduced the vocabulary of freedom, of emancipation, of liberty. He can introduce a new language into the psyche of the Jewish people. And he could stand up to Paroi to be able to put an end, to demand that he puts an end to tyranny. This is how the Evan Ezra explains the way Moshe grew up. So Moshe is the first melech of the Jewish people. And he, of course, leads the Jewish people. He's the leader. He's the first manhig, the first melech of Am Yisrael. When the Jewish people were slaves, they could not be seen as a people. You can't make a nation out of slaves because they're completely subservient and subjugated by their masters. So they can't even be a nation. That's why the Navi Yecheskel describes Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, L'kachas goy mikerev goy. Hashem came and He extracted a nation from among another nation. In fact, Geulas Mitzrayim is compared to, compared to birth. When the baby is in the womb, the baby is not an independent person, obviously. Uba Yerechimah, it's a part of the mother. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is considered that, how the Navi Yecheskel says it, that God came and He extracted the child, and it was a painful extraction. Sometimes the child himself or herself doesn't want to leave. There's a lot of comfort in the womb. Mommy wants him to leave, but he doesn't always want to leave. And that sometimes repeats itself many years later. Doesn't want to leave. Mom's, mom's supper is good. So Yecheskel says, Hashem came and he, so to speak, extracted the child. Because a slave sometimes, you know, sometimes prisoners, when they're liberated from prison, they don't know what to do with themselves. There's many situations where prisoners for many years, they go out and they take their lives because they don't know what to do in, in freedom. And you have to take care of yourself. You have to make your own money. You have to make for yourself food. You have to have a place to live. You have to, nobody tells you what to do anymore. Sometimes it's extremely difficult. So Moshe Rabbeinu takes a band of slaves and he turns them into a people. And not just into a people, a mamleches koyenim, a royal people. But that journey is not an easy journey. It's a very profound transformation, which you'll see. The reason explains why at every crisis, they always say, let's just go back to Mitzrayim. It's like almost the battered woman syndrome, or the Stockholm syndrome. We, the, the, the evil that's familiar, it's terrible, but it's predictable. And if it's predictable, there's a certain comfort zone. It's a tragic comfort zone, but it exists. And Moshe is the one who's constantly instilling the, the confidence. The Rambam says that that's the reason that ultimately they couldn't go into Eretz Yisrael. They wanted to go in. And he sent the spies and they came back and they dissuaded the people from going in. So Hashem said, stay 40 years in the desert, you'll die here and your children will go in. The Rambam writes, it's not a punishment. It was simply reality. He says they had a, a, a mindset, they did not feel successful. They couldn't feel ready to go in. They didn't have it. And you know certain things in life, if you don't believe you can do it, you can't do it. There's the famous expression, right? Whether you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're probably right. 
If, I, if you believe you can't, you're right. You can't. And if you believe you can, you're also right. You can. They, they didn't believe they can. It was a natural consequence. So they can't. They won't be able to. So he said 40 years in the desert roughed. It gave them that identity. And the children who grew up in the desert, you know, they had to, you have to rough it out in the desert. <laughs> it's like living in the outdoors, literally. You know, they have these camps. They take kids for two months and you live in the outdoors. And you have to get your own food. You fish for food. They have some sardines, so nobody should starve. You make your own fire without matches. You figure out how to make a fire. You figure out how to protect yourself. It's a very good experience for a lot of young people who grew up in America of the 21st century. So the Rambam says the desert really, it molded them, it crafted them. It allowed them to become people who could be independent and the next generation could go into Eretz Yisrael. So this was Moshe's kingship, Moshe's malchus, to be able to take these people and turn them into a nation. Then, of course, you have David HaMelech. David HaMelech is seen as the greatest king in Jewish history. Not only as the greatest king in Jewish history, but it's only about David HaMelech who we say, the Gemara says in Rosh Hashanah, we say it in Kiddush Lavana, David Melech Yisrael, Chai Vekaya. That the malchus of, of the presence of David still lives on. David is considered not only the greatest king and one of the greatest warriors, but also one of the greatest, or the greatest poet. He is the poet, the poet laureate of the Jewish people. The Navi calls him in Shmuel, Ne'im Zmiros Yisrael, the sweet voice of the Jewish melody. Every Jew found his or her heart and poetry, deepest soul expression expressed in the Tehillim of David HaMelech, in the Psalms of David HaMelech. But not only was he a great king and a great poet and a great leader, he's also considered the person, and not considered, he was chosen by Hashem to begin the dynasty of Malchus. Because the king before him, Shaul, was a king for a short time, and the dynasty did not continue with Shaul. The dynasty of Malchus, meaning the world of royalty was given to David HaMelech. And that's why the Navi promises, Hashem promises, and he says in Tehillim that that your throne will endure. And ultimately, Malchus will never cease from base David. So David passes away and Shloimeh takes over and Rechavim takes over. And even though there's a split, but base David continues. And ultimately, Mashiach, it says, one of the qualifications, one of the criteria of Mashiach is that he comes, as the Rambam says, Mizera David Melech David. He has to be a descendant of David. Why? Why can't he be a descendant of somebody else? Because David was given the gift of Malchus. There could be other kings among the Jewish people. Shaul was not uh, from, uh, from Yehuda. Shaul was Binyamin. And Moshe was from Shevet Levi, and he was also a king. And Yeravim ben Avot was from Shevet Ephraim. You had many other kings. The Chashmanayim were Levim. They were Koyanim. They came from Shevet Levi. But that Malchus doesn't belong to them. The ultimate, the, the Rambam calls it Keser Malchus, the crown of Malchus. The Keser Malchus, that was given to Yehuda's family, to Shevet Yehuda. Layaser Shevet me Yehuda, Yaakov told Yehuda on his deathbed, the scepter will not depart from Yehuda and the ruler from among his feet. So therefore, David HaMelech, who was a descendant of Yehuda, Yehuda and Tamar, David is the one who acquires the crown, the Keser Malchus, the identity of Malchus, and bequeaths it to his family his children, all the way down to the generations till Mashiach, who also comes from David and Shlaima HaMelech. So there's something uniquely 
royal about David HaMalach. And what makes him uniquely royal is that he could bequeath to the Jewish people this gift of Malchus. As we said before, by Matan Torah, Hashem tells the Jewish people, Mamlech is Koyanim v'goy Kaddish. Then you have the Baal Shem Tev. The Baal Shem Tev, in a very different generation, also embodied this type of Malchus, this type of, of royalty. He was one of the greatest revolutionaries and leaders and thinkers in Jewish history, the architect of one of the most powerful movements in Judaism, which was essentially a revivalist, spiritual, creating a spiritual rejuvenation among the Jewish people. And it transformed the landscape of Jewish life it also tra- in Eastern Europe. And it also transformed the landscape of Machshava, of Machshava Sayadus, of Jewish scholarship. All of them essentially taught the Jewish people what it means, Va'atam Tiuli, Mamleches Koyanim, Vigay Kaddish. But if we take it one step deeper, we realize that these three people lived in completely different times and milieus, and therefore the challenge of Malchus in each of these generations meant something completely different. Which is why it's three different people at three different stages in history representing one truth but manifested in three different ways. Moshe emancipates the Jewish people from slavery. That's true. He lives with them for 40 years in a desert. Moshe is a king, but their existence is a supernatural existence. They're surrounded by clouds of glory. They witness the infinity and the grace of Hashem. Their daily breakfast, lunch, and dinner is literally bread from heaven. Their water comes from the rolling stone. Be'erish al Miriam, the well of Miriam. No laundry, no shopping, no mortgage payments, not even tuition. Not trying to get your girls into a certain school or your boys into a certain school. Everybody was welcome in Moshe Rabbeinu's yeshiva. He spoke to everybody, he taught everybody, and he didn't ask, what's your last name? And how much is the check for? Or how much protects you or connections you have? But at that time, the Jewish people were on top of the world. And on top of the world, pun intended. Literally. Fed with manna, surrounded by glory, by clouds of glory. Anani covered experiencing intimacy with the divine. So they could see with their own eyes how the Torah was a source of life and nourishment. Of course they felt like kings. <laughs> you treat somebody like a king, they feel like a king. They were treated like kings. God says, I lifted you up on the wings of eagles. And I brought you to me. And I defined you as my people and I'll be your God. So of course, you're you're a kingdom of princes, you're a Goy Kaddish. God says, I'm your king. Moshe is my conduit. Ultimately, I'm the Melech. They really, they felt like kings. It was hard, it was a conflict because they had this Egyptian, the Egyptian voices that still spoke, that still existed in their hearts, which is why there were struggles and conflicts. But we can understand that they felt like kings. David HaMelech, who passes away on Shavuos, lives in a very different milieu. He lives in a different era in history. Jews are living in a natural world. They're living in Eretz Yisrael. They're not eating manna from heaven. They're not surrounded by clouds of glory. David was surrounded by many, many mortal enemies 
who wanted to overthrow his empire, and not only mortal enemies from without, but also mortal enemies from within, including from his father-in-law Shaul and his family, and from his own children, his own family, like Avshalom and others. David HaMelech was surrounded by many a foe, and he needed to engage in many battles throughout his monarchy in order to protect his people and his land. David HaMelech's reign was anything but tranquil. It was anything but serene. It was rocked by anxiety from within and from without. If you read David HaMelech's book of Tehillim, and you see how he speaks about his pain, his anguish, his agony, his suffering. Unfortunately, many people just read Tehillim in Hebrew, so they don't understand the poetry. It's worthwhile to do Tehillim, unless you understand the Hebrew, to at least read the translation in English. Today they have Tehillims where you have both languages. So you could read in Hebrew and see the English, or read in English. But when you read those, those, those chapters in Tehillim, you slowly and you breathe in the words, you meditate on the words, it's incredible to see what David went through and how vulnerable he is, how open he is. Somebody asked me the other day, is there a tradition of vulnerability in Judaism? Because they didn't believe there was such a tradition. I said, open up a safe at the Hillim. You will not find any vulnerable book, I don't know, any vulnerable book in the world as vulnerable as Tehillim. Every chapter is more vulnerable than the other. He speaks there about his depression. He speaks there about his sense of denigration. He speaks there about him being in the abyss, him being in purgatory. At some point he says, I don't even feel like a human being, I'm a worm. I'm the shanda of people. My own brothers look at me as a mamzer. The children of my mother think I'm some alien, uh, alien creature. I mean, he speaks about uh, his challenges and his struggles, but he never ever loses his relationship with Hashem. I walk in the valley of the shadow of death and I still don't feel evil. So David HaMelech's monarchy was anything but just peaceful and restful. Ultimately, his own son Afshalom would rebel against him, try to kill him, overthrow his monarchy, expel him from Jerusalem. And David HaMelech has to leave Yerushalayim. His own life is in danger because of his son Afshalom, who rebelled against his father. One can only imagine the torment. It's not just a Philistine enemy or Ammonite enemy or Moabite enemy attacks him. He had plenty of that too. But his own child attacked him. At the end, Avshalom was killed and David HaMelech came back to Yerushalayim. But he never got over the death of his son Avshalom. And as I spoke last week, was it last week or two weeks ago, about Amnon and Tamar, David HaMelech lost another son, Amnon, who his half-brother killed, and his daughter Tamar was violated, and he had a child from Bathsheba, the first child of Bathsheba who died. More about this in our Shavuos night lecture, David and Bathsheba, the way you never heard it before. So just a sneak preview. What do they call it? A sneak preview. Shru is one o'clock in the morning. But after everything said and done, you can't compare Moshe's reign to, to David HaMelech's reign. That's true. They're not, it's, not, it's not a time of Nisim, miracles like in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. And it's one of the reasons the spies didn't want to go into Eretz Yisrael. The Balatanya says the Miram didn't want to go into Eretz Yisrael, not just because they were rabble-rousers. It's much deeper. Because the Chedush Harim says, you know what an Edom of Kest is? An Edom of Kest was the expression in Yiddish when your son-in-law, son-in-law lived by the in-laws and he would learn and they supported him. 
So the Chidush Arim says the spies in the Midbar were like an Edom of Kest. Why should I go work? <laughs> such a good shver, such a good shviger. I have man every day. We have to go and take the stroll and start becoming a farmer. We have to make a government. We have to build an army. We have to build cities. Verdafas. The Miraglim actually had a good taina. <laughs> they said, you have paradise here. We have Moshe, you have Aaron. What, what else do you need? You got to be crazy to want to leave this cocoon, to leave this paradise. The Miraglim were not afraid of their weakness. They were afraid of strength. They were afraid they're going to be successful and go into Eretz Yisrael. And that would be their nightmare. Suddenly life will change. And yet it was considered a sin because the objective was not to remain in the desert. The objective is ultimately to sanctify the landscape of planet Earth, to elevate the physical, not just to escape into a heaven within Earth, as tempting and as amazing and as powerful as that is. David HaMelech already lived in that land, a land that was governed by the laws of Teva, by the laws of nature, not by Nisim. But nonetheless, the Jews were living in their own homeland. They were living in Eretz Yisrael. David HaMelech also prepared all the material to be able to build the Beis HaMikdash. He also, for the first time, united all the tribes of Israel under one king. First seven years in Hebron, and then another 33 years in Yerushalayim. He bought Yerushalayim, he established Yerushalayim, as the, he conquered Yerushalayim and he built and established Ir David as the epicenter of the Jewish people, spiritually and politically and militarily. And he built Ir David and he designated the mountain that will ultimately become the place of the Shechina, the Beis Hamikdash, that would be built by his son Shlomo, who continued his father's work. So David HaMelech already is called, David HaMelech is that king who unifies the Jewish people, whose entire ambition is to settle them, to give them a place where they could be secure physically and therefore secure spiritually and morally and politically and militarily. And David became that visionary. Forty years he was a king over the Jewish people till his death at the age of 70 on Shavuos. So there was a certain sense of stability and consistency and a sense of eternity and coming back to El HaMenucha of El HaNachel, reaching the ultimate destination of the Jewish people in Yerushalayim, under David's reign, as, as the Melech that Hashem appointed and Hashem coronated through Shmuel Hanavi after Shaul. Finally, he raised the single flag, a unified flag of the Jewish people high, uniting Klal Yisrael and bringing a certain, a certain amount of stability and pride, and peace, for the first time in history, in a very, very long time. Of course, Shleimah would bring it even to the next level. Shleimah would really, Shleimah comes from the word Shalom, Shleimah would create alliances with the kings around him, and he would become excessively popular, and excessively affluent, etc. So under David HaMelech, once again, the Jews could feel like kings. They could look at themselves and say, Enter the third personality connected to Shavuos, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov. When the Baal Shem Tov was born in 1698, everything was very different. Baal Shem Tov was born in the Ukraine, near the Carpathian Mountains. A place called Akup. The people, the Jewish people were shattered, both physically and spiritually. And not just shattered, but shattered into small, broken fragmented pieces. The Jewish community was just recovering from the horrific massacres known as Gzeres Tach Vetat, 
Those were the massacres by the Cossacks led by Bogdan Khmelnytsky, whose statue unfortunately still reigns supreme in Kiev, capital of Ukraine. Bogdan Khmelnytsky and his Cossacks slaughtered approximately 300,000 Jews in Poland and Ukraine at the time. It was called Ukraine. Today it's called Ukraine. Then it was considered Poland, which was the worst massacre in Jewish history since the destruction of the Second Beis Hamikdash and the Barkaychva revolt. Until the Holocaust, and until the Holocaust, which of course was a, was a, a, a darkness all its own, Xerius Tachvetat were the defining massacres of Jewish history in Gullahs because of the sheer amount of num- the numbers were astronomical and also the way it was done when going from city to city, village to village. As described, we have diaries from the time there was a Jew, Reb Nossin Hanover, who wrote us a, a book called the Yavon Metzula, describing events that happened during the Xerius Tachvetat 1648-1649. Jews were, were craving for some solace, for some stability, for some comfort, for some dignity. And then this solace showed up in a man who promised redemption. He was born on Tishabov, and uh, that's why he was named on Tishabov and also Shabbos. It was Shabbos, so they named him Shapsi. And he came to be known as Shapsi Tzvi. And Shapsi Tzvi declared himself as a Mashiach, and he had a spokesman, a man named Nathan from Gaza, Nosan HaAzasa, who had the gift of gab, and he was his PR man. You know, a talented person, you need a PR man or a PR woman. And this man was very good at PR. And he really made Shapsi Tzvi a success story to the point that so many Jews in Europe really believed that this is it. And then in 1666, when he was offered the choice of death or conversion to Islam, Shapsi Tzvi converted to Islam. What that did to the Jewish world, spiritually, morally, after the Xerius Tachvatah, this is 1666, just two decades later, it was a fatal blow. The morale descended so deeply into the abyss because the hopes were elevated. They were so high, and yet he proved not just to be a false messiah, but suddenly their Mashiach was now a Muslim. Of course, there were a group of Jews, some followers, who still believed, and they said Mashiach has to convert to Islam to elevate sparks, that became a whole group of Shapsi Tzvi followers and Yaakov Frank, which wreaked havoc in that time. So you can understand the morale, the fallen morale of the Jewish people, physically, spiritually, and morally. Never mind when you speak about the poverty that they lived in. The sheer poverty that most Jews lived in during that time. This is the 17th century. It was, it was so bad, it was so difficult there was like a certain darkness that descended on the Jewish psyche, on the Jewish world. You could say that the demoralization of the Jewish people at that time was so profound, it was almost like they reached their lowest nadir. It was so, it was so excruciatingly painful and difficult for so many Jews. And if that was not enough, those years, the end of the 1600s, is when the Enlightenment began, what's known as the Haskalah. And the Enlightenment, which began in Western Europe, in England and in Germany and in France, it began to take root in Western Europe and it would prove yet another major challenge to the destiny of the Jewish people 
because it would result in mass assimilation and mass conversion of Jews in the 17th and 18th and 19th century in Western Europe and Eastern Europe. The secularization of the Jewish people began to happen at that time, to the point that even before the Second World War, probably more than half of the Jewish people, or half of the Jewish people, I don't know the exact number, have left Judaism. The splits in the Jewish world, what type of Jew you are. There used to be a Jew was a Jew was a Jew. There were no differences. Then you had to know, today you're a Reformed Jew, you're a conservative Jew, conservadox Jew, modern Jew, this type of Jew, that type of Jew. All this happened afterwards, and this was a major, major challenge for the Jewish people, and everybody responded in different ways. And millions of Jewish youth were became confused with all of the various movements that sprung up. And it was precisely in that era, literally the same years when the Enlightenment began, and just a few decades after Tach V'tat, and a few decades after Shapsi Tzvi, that the Baal Shem Tov was born. And one of the great masters once gave a beautiful metaphor. He says, sometimes when somebody's in a faint, what you do is you whisper their name into their ear. Because the name of a person is a channel for their energy. So when you whisper their name, it's sometimes a powerful tool to wake them up from a deep, uh, a deep faint state. So when the Jewish people found themselves in such a spiritual faint, coma-like state, comatose, the Rebbeinu Shalom whispered the name of the Jewish people into their ear. And the name of the Jewish people is Yisrael. So this little boy was born and his name was Yisrael, the Baal Shem Tov. And his life was about whispering the name of the Jewish people into their ear. In other words, giving a person once again a link to his or her name, identity, vitality, chius. To be able to make Jews feel like kings in that era, that was a tremendous chiddush, that was a tremendous novelty. To be able to confer upon the Jewish people the keser malchus, the crown of royalty, in a bitter and dark gullus, when people felt so much poverty and so much demoralization and experienced such darkness on so many levels, to be able to give the Jewish people that inner sense of, of dignity, it was like a tchiyas ha-meisim, it was like a resurrection. To be able to feel to restore and confer upon their heads those two crowns that they received. The Gemara says in Shabbos that they received two crowns. How did the Baal Shem Tov do this? What did the Baal Shem Tov do? The Baal Shem Tov started to teach the Jewish people that the definition of a king doesn't begin with outer circumstances. The definition of Malchus always begins internally. How you see yourself in the world understanding who you are, what your identity is. That makes all the difference. And I'm going to share two such teachings. One is a teaching, one is a story that embodies this quality and really brings home what's the idea of Mamleches Kayanah. There's a sefer called Lekutei Maharan. Lekutei Maharan comes from it's the writings of Reb Nachman of Breslov, who actually passed away Sukkot. Reb Nachman of Breslov was a great grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. His mother's name was Fega, and Fega's mother's name was Adl. And Adl was a daughter of the Baal Shem Tov. Baal Shem Tov had a son, Reb Tzvi, 
and he had a daughter named Adl. Adl is a very beautiful name. It's an edler name, pun intended. Adl means edel, very fine, refined. The Balshemtiv's daughter was Adl, and he had a very special relationship with his daughter. When he wanted to go to Eretz Yisrael, he took his daughter with him. They never made it. They got stuck on an island. Agan Samaisa on Pesach, he was saved. But Adl was at her father's side. It's not clear when she passed away, maybe before him or after him, it's not clear. But she had a few children. Rebaruchel of Mezheburj, the Degel Machin Ephraim. She had a daughter, Fege, who I believe was the mother of Reb Nachman of Breslov. So Reb Nachman was a, grand, a great grandson of the Balshamtiv. And a nephew of Rebaruchel of Mezheburj. So he writes in Lekute Maran an incredible teaching of his great grandfather of the Balshamtiv. And it's also connected to David Amelech. Again, this is more, of our ta- more about this on Shavuos in our class on David and Bathsheba, but I'm just going to say one point. When David engages in his connection with Bathsheba, Bathsheba was married to Uriah, and Uriah went to war, and David took Bathsheba, and then sent back Uriah to the battle, and Uriah was killed, and then David married Bathsheba, and Shloimeh came from that marriage. It's one of the most difficult stories in Tanakh. The Navi, Nasana Navi, came to speak to David. And give him what you would call Musa. By the Jews, the prophet could speak to the king. <laughs> In other cultures, the prophet didn't speak to the king like this because he went out with a head shorter. But Nasan challenged David. What did he tell David? He tells David a story. The story is that there was a rich man who had a lot, a lot of sheep. And there was a poor man who had only one sheep. It's all he had. And a guest came to the rich man and he wanted a meal. The rich man didn't want his own sheep, so he stole the sheep from the poor man and he slaughtered it to give it to the rich man. And he asked David, what's the verdict for this man? David says, he should be killed. Ben Mavis, he should be killed. So the Nasin Anavi says, that's you. David didn't realize where he's going with this, that's you. You're a king, you have whatever you want. You have Uriah, had one little sheep. And you stole the sheep, his wife, Bathsheba, for you. When you have everything, you're the king of the Jewish people. And when David heard that, David said two words. Chatasi lasha. I sinned. Which is why David became the paradigm of the Balchuva. The Gemara says, David heikim oilashul tshuva. He erected the yoke of tshuva. Nu'um hagever hukamal. Heikim oilashul tshuva. The Gemara says, Lohaya David roi loisamaisa. David on his own would not be worthy, would not be capable of this story. But the Hashgacha wanted this to happen. So that David would become an example of anybody who made terrible mistakes in life, that there's no such a thing, the situation is hopeless. Asks Reb Nachman in the name of the Baal Shem, he says, I don't understand. Why did Nassim have to go start telling him stories about sheep and which people? Just tell him David Amelech. You're a criminal. It's so horrible what you did. Just tell him a story with a sheep, with a poor person, with a wealthy person. Just confront them and tell them the truth. So he says the answer is based on the teaching of his grandfather, the Baal Shem Tov. And listen to the answer. It says in Pirkei You should always know before whom you're going to give a din and a cheshb. What does din mean? A verdict. What does cheshben mean? Calculation. What comes first? The verdict or the calculation? What do you do first? First you make a cheshben. And then there's the din, right? 
Cheshbon means you survey all the facts, the checks and the balances, and then there's a din. Din is a psak, a verdict. Allah. So lifnei miyata osid litein cheshbon v'din, not din v'cheshbon. Well, Shemtev's question. Then he asks another question. It says in Prekayavis, nifrayin mina adam midaito yvishaloi midaito. You exact payment from a person consciously and unconsciously. Midaito means with his consent, with his das. Vishaloi midaito without his das. Which one is it? So the commentators struggle. What does it mean? So the Balshamtiv said as follows. The Reb Nachman writes, it brings the from the Balshamtiv. Reb Balshamtiv said that the way people are judged is not directly. When it comes the time to judge a person, the person is asked, is showing the life of somebody else. And the person is asked to give a verdict on the life of the other person. <laughs> it's coming together. Not a trick, you'll soon see, it's not a trick. <laughs> and then, afterwards they say, ah, that's the verdict, now let's see your life. And suddenly you realize that my judgment wasn't about you, it was about me. Because the life I was showing, or the details I was showing, were reflective of aspects in my own life. I thought I was judging you, I was judging myself. So the Baal Shem Tov said, be careful before you judge people. God brings different situations into your life every day, every month, every year. There's certain people I meet, there's certain people I don't meet. Certain people I hear stories about them, certain people I don't hear stories about them. Why? It's not by mistake. Every situation I'm judging, he said, realize you're not judging another person's life. You're judging your own life. What do they say when you point a finger at somebody? You're pointing three fingers at yourself. Right? You ever noticed? (laughs) Only one finger at you. Three of my fingers are pointing at me. And that's how it also works in Elam Haba. Google. Google in Bezdin Shalmaila, whatever their name is. Print out, you know, Google knows everything. Somebody asked me that they were a mitzvah boy. He said, you think it's, I learned in Prekiyovus that God sees everything and hears everything. It's Mama Shru. He really knows everything I do. I said, Google knows. You think Hashem has a problem? No way. <laughs> I'll call upon him. So he says, in Elam also, they show a person a life. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? What do you think about this? Person judges. This is what should happen. So the Bosham says, Din v'cheshben. First is a verdict. I give a verdict on somebody else. Now is a cheshben. Now they make a calculation and say, ah, you just defined your own story. That's pshat nifroyen mina adam midaitoi v'shaloi midaitoi. Everybody is the one who decides their own destiny. Consciously or unconsciously, both. Consciously about somebody else. Unconsciously about me. I didn't know I was talking about me. I thought I was talking about you. So the Baal Shem, the Ibn Nachman says, Nasin Anavi couldn't give David Amalek the verdict. David Amalek had to give the verdict for David Amalek. Nasin Anavi could tell him a story about a sheep and a poor person. David Amalek gave the verdict. After that, Nasin Anavi said, Ata Ish, you're the person. The person you spoke about is you. And David says, You're right. Chatasi. Hekim Eilashal Tshuva. What's behind this insight? Just a trick? I'll chap you. That's the vart. Because somebody else you don't care about. 
So I'll give you the worst verdict in the world. Ah, chapt. It's the exact opposite. What the Baal Shem Tov is trying to say is, nobody, not even Bezdin Shalmaila, could tell a Jew where to go. Because if you're a chelik, if you're a piece of Hashem, if your soul and your body are essentially in manifestations of Hashem in this world, so you're completely one with the divine creator, so nobody can tell you where to go. You could never ever be a victim, even of a great angel's verdict. The only one who can tell you where to go in life is who? Yourself. Once you say where you could go, now we can go, you can go there. What he was trying to bring out is what it's Pshat Vatim Tiuli Mamleches Koyana. Melucha, real kingship, is not just the kingship when I'm in circumstances, I'm in the clouds of glory. Obviously, that's amazing. Or even David Amelech's Malchus. But in the times of the Baal Shem Tev, when at the surface the Jews were pitiful, pitiful victims of pitiful and horrible circumstances to ignite the inner glory of the soul, to realize your own inner light, your own powerful light, that ultimately I'm the only one who can decide my own story, my own verdict. I'm the author of my own biography. To be able to give that to a person. Why? Because Mamlech is because Malchus is not something you acquire from outer validation. Malchus is your inherent state. Malchus doesn't mean your ability to control people, your ability to be a dictator. That's a moishel. Malchus means the fact that you're internally free. You're not defined by any limits you might think were imposed upon you by circumstances or even by genetics or by upbringing, by nature or nurture. Or by events in life. Of course I'm a victim. How am I not a victim? Says the Baal Shem and says, only you could give the verdict. Only you could tell yourself where to go. Why? Because your soul essentially is rooted in a place of infinity. And if it's rooted in a place of infinity, no shackles can confine it. Circumstances don't define you. You define your circumstances. Because if you're a piece of Hashem, He's not defined by the circumstances. He sent you into these circumstances in order to be able to bring light into that space. Once the Baal Shem Tov Friday night made Kiddush, and he had his students around him, they were called the Chavraya Kaddish, the holy group. As he was making Kiddush, he finished Kiddush, he drank, he gave the wine to the people around the table, and he started to laugh. This was very uncharacteristic. He was like quelling and laughing, nobody made a joke. They didn't understand why he's laughing. They finished the fish, they washed Hamaitzi, this fish, Finished the fish and he started to laugh again. Just laughing. It was very strange. They served this, the yoich, the soup, and then the chicken, whatever they had there. The chicken, and he starts laughing again. Nobody felt, uh, you know, audacious enough, I guess, to ask him. So nobody said anything. But Metzai Shabbos, one of his closer students, went over after Maidu, after Avdolan, and he said, Rebbe, can I ask a question? He said, you were laughing three times after Kiddush, after the fish, after the chicken. What was the laughter all about? So the Baal Shem Tov said, go to the end of the city and ask Shapsi, the bookbinder, if he could come over. So he goes to Shapsi, the bookbinder, and he says, the Baal Shem Tov asked if he could come over to the base measure, to the Shul and Mezhebur. So he comes over. 
So the Baal Shem Tufsel tells him, Shapsi, can you share with everybody what happened Friday night in your house? He says, Rebbe, don't embarrass me. <laughs> I won't do it again. He says, no, 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 it's not embarrassing. I want everybody to know what happened. If you don't mind sharing what happened Friday night in your house. So he says, okay, I'll share. You know, Rebbe, he says, for me and my wife, Shabbos is an amazing day. And I always saved up money for my bookbinding business to have a little extra to be able to buy wonderful, delicious food and delicacies to celebrate Shabbos as we should. But you know, the last few weeks, there's been heavy snows here in this part of the Ukraine and Mezhebush, and nobody came to bind their books. He was a bookbinder. Bookbinding was a parnasa. It was a meager income, but it was an income. Nobody came. And I didn't have any savings. So it came before Shabbos. It was Thursday night, and I tell my wife, not one customer came. I don't even have a kopka. Kopka would be like a penny, or a ruble would be like a dollar, Russian currency, Polish uh, at the time, called a ruble. Today, a ruble is also like a penny, <laughs> thanks to Putin. But in any case, I didn't have even a ruble for Shabbos. So my wife says, so what do you want to do, Shabbos? I said, There's not, I can't even afford a candle. You should be able to light candles. Never mind a piece of fish, never mind wine. That's what happened. So Thursday night we spoke and we realized this is a situation and I shed a tear, my wife shed a tear and we went to bed hungry. Friday morning, I realized for me to stay in the house it's going to be very depressing. So after Shachris, I decided I'll just stay in shul and I'll learn. And I learned the Parsha of the week and I was Maiva the Sedra and I said Shir Hashirim and I went to the Mikveh and I prepared for Shabbos. And I knew that I'm coming home. It says, I say Shabbat Chachel, I'm coming home not to a regular Shabbos. But that's it. There's nothing to do. So he says, after my riv, I came home. And as I come close to my house, I see this light coming from our windows. Beautiful light. I see candles glowing. I open the door and I smell. It's like, such a smell. Ganeid. I walk into the house and I see a tablecloth set up with foods and delicacies we never even dreamt of. My wife prepared a Shabbos meal. So I look at her and I say, where did you get all of this? So she said, I saw your pain Thursday night, how pained you were. So after you went to Shul Friday morning, I decided, let me search. Maybe I have some old clothes that maybe have something expensive. And I found an old coat that I haven't used, many as it had golden buttons. So I went immediately, I took off the buttons, and I went to the man who deals with gold, and I got a wonderful sum of money, and I bought candles, and I bought the best food for Shabbos, so we'll have a beautiful Shabbos. So here we have, ah, he says, I can't thank you enough. And we did Shalom Aleichem together, and Eish Chayel together, and when I said Eish Chayel Meyimtza, I certainly knew who I was talking about. Rabbi's Bonois Asuchel Va'at Alis Al Kolana. I made Kiddush. We were so happy. I finished my Kiddush. And I turned to my wife and I said, You know, I could not thank you enough for what you have done. And I can't thank Hashem enough for giving me a wife like you and for giving us the gift of Shabbos. So he says, Lomme Gaina Tensel. Let's dance. So she says, Sure. And he said, Me and my wife. Like a choo-choo train, then they didn't have choo-choo trains yet. But uh, we, uh, we joined, 
we joined arms and energies and we danced around the table. We ate the fish, we made hamoitzi, ate the fish, and after the fish, I was so inspired, I looked at her and I said, how did I get so lucky to have be married to a person like you? And how did we get so lucky to have a gift like Shabbos? And how could we express thanks that this Shabbos we could still celebrate with so much ecstasy and delight? We have to dance a second time. She said, I'm game. And we danced again around the table for a long time with tremendous joy. We sat down. I ate the chicken. After the chicken, I told my wife, my heart is swelling with joy and ecstasy. We have to dance again. She said, let's go for it. And we danced and danced and danced. That's what happened in my house Friday night. So the Baal Shem Tev is listening and he says, Shapsi, I want you to know something. When you and your wife danced after Kiddush and after the fish and after the chicken, you should know you weren't the only ones dancing. Heaven was dancing with you. The Rebbeinu Shalom himself, Hashem himself was dancing with you. And all the angels were dancing with you. And I too was celebrating with you. And then he turned to him and he said, is there anything you need? So he said, the one thing we would love as a child, we were never blessed with a child. They didn't have, cho- they didn't have children. So the Baal Shem Tev gave him a blessing that the next year his wife should give birth. And they had a baby. And she named him Yisrael. The same name like the Baal Shem Tev. And he became the Kajnitz Amagat. The Kajnitz Amagat's name was Rabbi Yisrael of Kajnitz. He wrote a sefer called Avoidas Yisrael. Kajnitz is a city in Poland. He became one of the luminaries of the Hasidic uh, the world in Poland. He's known as the Kajnitz Amagat, Rabbi Yisrael. He was a son of Rabbi Shapsi, who was the bookbinder of Meshapush. This is the malucha, the kingship that he wanted every Jew to feel person is sitting alone Friday night, they don't even have children, poor people, they have some candles, they can filter fish, and they're dancing. He said, heaven is dancing with you. And I also danced with you. The unique recognition of a person's indispensable, non-negotiable value, and the fact that each person is an indispensable note in the cosmic symphony, and that heaven dances with you, that's the malchus, that Torah conferred upon the Jew. And in each generation, Moshe bequeathed it in his unique way, David bequeathed it in his unique way, and the Baal Shem Tev bequeathed it in his unique way. That ability for a person to realize what real royalty means. Royalty doesn't mean that all my circumstances are perfect, that I'm living in an ivory tower, <laughs> that I have no challenge in the world, I have no struggle in the world. I'm eating manna from heaven and in clouds of glory. There's those moments too, and we're very grateful for those moments. The real royalty means that the person realizes that wherever you are, wherever I am, I'm never stuck. There's meaning, there's purpose, there's light, there's infinity, there's a mission here. I'm a shliach, I'm an ambassador of the Rebbeinu Shalom in this world. I'm an ambassador of the Rebbeinu Shalom in these very circumstances. And therefore, there's an internal sense of confidence, of empowerment, 
person stands tall with an inner joy, not a tallness of vanity or egotism or, or narcissism or, or hollow pride, but a, a, van- a, a pride that comes from a person's inner relationship and connection with the Melech Malche Amlochim. Eved Melech Melech, the servant of a king, Rashi says in Parshas Dvarim, is a king, which was why the Baal Shem Tev taught that Geula and Golos are a state of consciousness. Exile is a state of consciousness, and redemption is also a state of consciousness. Everybody have a wonderful week. On Afrelech and Yomtev, I'll remind you again, next Tuesday there's no class. Next Tuesday there's no class. This Tuesday after there is. The night of Shavuos, which is Mitzay Shabbos, Bishat Be'ezer Hashem, Haba Aleinu Valkal Yisrael Atoiva, so there'll be two uh, midnight Shavuos uh, classes, 1 to 2.30 a.m. and 2.45 to 4.15 a.m. 1 to 2.30 a.m., 2.45 to 4.15 a.m. Each one is an hour and a half, right here in Tent Gimel. For men and for women, there'll be a mechitza, and also for youth, for children or teenagers, whoever wants to come. The topic of the first one is David and Bathsheba, the way you never heard it before. And the second class, which is 245, will be what the derech of Judaism will prevail in a hundred years. And the second day of Shavuos, Monday afternoon, 6.30 p.m., that's the second day of Shavuos, not the first day, the second day of Shavuos, 6.30, there will also be a lecture here, a shear here for men and women. The title will be, If I Only Would Have Known the Rest of the Story. Wishing you all a beautiful week. Agut Chaydish. Afrelech in Yamtev, Kabbalah Satayra with Simcha, Pnimius, and all the blessings to you and your loved ones. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.